Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. These last several messages from Luke 14, we have been in the home of a religious leader, and now we're back out in public in the midst of great crowds. And we'll be reading this morning Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Out of reverence and respect for God and His Word, let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all see it and begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet great far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Jesus, we confess right off the bat we're often slow to hear. And so we pray this morning through the ministry of your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would give us ears to hear and hearts to quickly believe and apply. Work that grace in us, continue to strengthen us as followers of Jesus, as disciples of the cross. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. You know, there's something about a, a room, a large place that's filled with people that generates a sense of excitement, a full coliseum especially when we beat UNC in basketball. Somebody said, the streak's over, and I said, no, it's just beginning. There's something about a large stadium field, especially when people are wearing orange. There's something about an overflowing church gathered with worshipers. I, I love it on Sunday when the house is full, and beforehand you hear the vibrant conversations of people gathering together the singing of praise, and even as the volume is elevated as the students have returned, the joy, the sounds of worship are encouraging. In fact, many churches see a full house as a measure of success. There's a sense of excitement and joy and noise. Well, this sense of excitement, which accompanies large crowds, is becoming a hallmark now of Jesus' ministry. He was experiencing unprecedented popularity. The crowds were swelling. His notoriety was increasing. And the people were following him literally by the thousands now. He had fed 4,000 plus, later 5,000 plus. And Luke records for us here 
that there were great crowds accompanying him. And no doubt there was much excitement and anticipation. And the disciples more than likely saw this as a sign of ministry success. And they would have been excited about it. But Jesus does not always see it that way. He doesn't assume that because there's a large crowd that there is success in the kingdom of God. In fact, the, the swelling numbers could mean just the opposite. It may be that there's so many because so few have actually counted the cost of what it means to be a disciple. And that was the case, in fact, in Jesus' day. But it's not only the case in Jesus' day, it can be the case in our day as well. And so Jesus takes this occasion of a full house to remind the people of the absolute demands of discipleship and the non-negotiable costs of what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. In this section, Luke reminds us that following Jesus and discipleship involves a call to absolute, unrivaled love for and allegiance to Christ. Did you notice three times Jesus says, if you're not willing to do this, you cannot be my disciple. He says it in verse 26 and verse 27 and verse 33. In other words, there are non-negotiables. And the first non-negotiable that he mentions in following him is really stated in quite stark language. He says, unless you hate your father and mother and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, even your own life, you cannot be my disciples. What does Jesus mean by, by hate? Jesus is not abrogating the fifth commandment and telling children to no longer love and honor their parents. He's not negating the teachings uh, later of the Apostle Paul where husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. No, Jesus is using comparative language. He's reminding us that the call to love him is to be above all. He's saying that all other legitimate loves should pale in comparison with our love for and allegiance to him. And the contrast should be so great that the love of family looks like hate in comparison with this love and loyalty to him. Your love for your family should be intact. Yes, love your family, love your friends, love them well. But Jesus says, your love for me must go far beyond. Without this loving loyalty, he says, you cannot be my disciple. For some, this loyalty and allegiance may actually mean having to choose between the two. Having to choose between Christ and family, the, the Muslim or the Hindu or the Buddhist who, who comes to faith in Christ and makes public that profession, even at the expense of his own life, may have to part from his family. The boyfriend or girlfriend whose life has been radically changed by the gospel of grace may have to leave that relationship in order to honor Christ. The university student who comes to faith in Jesus and goes home and tells his or her parents of their newfound faith in Jesus might find great disappointment and, and difficulty. Anyone who loves Christ will face persecution in this life, Paul tells Timothy. 
But you know, it, it's not always persecution that drives a wedge between us and a passionate pursuit of Jesus. Sometimes it is that love of family, that those good relationships, those healthy relationships, those God-given relationships, nevertheless can become idolatrous in which we begin to love these things more than Christ. Pastor Kent Hughes writes parents encouraging them in this particular area, we miss the mark when we put our children's development athletically, intellectually, culturally, artistically, socially before their spiritual well-being. In other words, as parents, we can so love our children that we center our lives around them and around their activities to the neglect of their spiritual well-being. And in so doing, we model for them unintentionally. Nevertheless, we model for them what it means not to follow Jesus. Because in our homes, in our daily schedules, he takes somewhere a secondary or tertiary place. And Jesus says all these other loves, all these other pursuits that can be good and healthy in themselves should pale in comparison with your passionate pursuit of knowing and loving and honoring me. Sometimes this love for Christ is going to cause relationships to strain. Sometimes it's our sense of identity and sense of security in our relationships or our vocations or our homes, or our hobbies, and somehow they, they begin to ease up the scale and Jesus takes a back seat in our lives. But to be a Christian, Jesus is saying, is to pursue an absolute unrivaled allegiance to him above all else, no matter the relational cost. For some, that may mean leaving geographically family and friends. Simply because the call of the gospel to share the good news so compels you, you're going to leave here and go elsewhere. I've shared with you before, years ago, some of our, our members and dear friends, John and Emily Wiley, left for China for several years. And as they were in the process of making plans and packing up, I was at a tailgate one day before a football game and talking to Emily's father, uh, Johnny Moore. And he was bemoaning the fact that they were moving so far away and that they actually had the audacity to take his grandchildren with them and I said you know Johnny this is what we pray though we want to see the gospel to go to the ends of the earth this is precisely what we pray for other people's children we don't want our ours to, to move far away we love family and friends and Jesus is not negating that in fact loving Jesus helps us love our family and friends better but sometimes our love for him will exceed even that and we will be called to foreign lands. I had two conversations just in the last couple of weeks of individuals and families that, that God's calling geographically away from their family and friends for the sake of the gospel. And their decision has been heart-wrenching. It's difficult and I get it. But not everyone is going to be called to literally move away from family and friends. But wherever our allegiance is to Christ, whatever it might take, whatever form it might take, it's abundantly clear. Jesus says in no uncertain terms, you cannot follow me unless you are willing to forsake all family and friends and all that's familiar. Unless your love and affection and allegiance for me surpasses these, you cannot be my disciples. And I struggle with this. I want my family close by. I have one of my family members accusing me of saying, you can move as far away as you want as long as it's within a 15-minute drive. I get it. My struggle is that I still have these idols of the heart. 
that, that somehow they work their way up the chain of affection and I find myself loving them more than Jesus. And so what do we do? We ask God to give us such a, a grand vision of his beauty and his glory that his love for us and our love for him would supersede all these other loves. And we pray and we sing sometimes with cheers, William Cooper's, with tears, William Cooper's song, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That's what Jesus is calling for amidst the crowd. He is saying that you must have an absolute unrivaled love for and allegiance to me or you can't be my disciple. Second, Jesus goes on and he reminds us that following him in discipleship involves cost of personal suffering and sacrifice. He went on to say in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross comes and comes after me cannot be my disciple. Early in Luke's gospel, Jesus defined discipleship this way. 9.23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Just a few verses later, for Jesus, that language was not figurative, it was literal. Luke tells us Jesus set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because there was the cross. There's where he would bleed and die for our sake as a sacrifice for our sins. That was the cross Jesus had in mind, and he set his face like a flint towards it. But followers of Jesus also have a cross. What is our cross? Let me first say what our cross is not. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about suffering and suffering that's really common to, to man. And you may hear them say something like, well, I'm, I'm struggling with this illness or this challenge at work, this difficulty at home, this uh, incredible hurdle uh, in, in my life, and it is so difficult. I guess this is the cross that I have to bear. And, and while those situations may indeed be dire and difficult, challenges at home, challenges in the workplace, challenges outside, challenges inside, the cross is not a diagnosis of cancer and chemo follow-up, as difficult as that is and will be for our family in the Jordans and has been for some of you all. It's not a strained marriage. It's not challenges in parenting. It's not loneliness in the midst of however many million people there are in our culture. Those struggles are common to believers and unbelievers alike. That's not the cross Jesus has in mind. The kind of cross that Jesus has in mind here is the suffering and sacrifice you experience as a result of and precisely because you're following Jesus. That's the cross. Just a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Wang Yi, who leads the Early Rain Covenant Church in China, was sentenced to nine years in prison because his church was not registered to the Communist Party, which is opposed to the gospel of grace. And this is what Pastor Yi said about the ministry of his church. This is the means by which I preach the gospel, and it is the mystery of the gospel I preach. And for this, he was sentenced to nine years in prison. That's bearing a cross. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're insulted for the name, the name of Christ, 
You're blessed because the spirit and glory of God rest upon you. But let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. That's the cross. It is the suffering and loss that you will experience because you have named the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, and you've said by his grace and for his glory, no matter the loss, no matter the cost, I'm following him. That's the cross. You see, following Jesus is always by way of via dolorosa. It's always the way of suffering. It's always the way of the cross. And here is where Jesus' teaching just cuts against so much of popular, broad evangelicalism in our culture today. You can turn on the TV, you can go to churches that are swelling and brimming over with people of large crowds and hear them say things like, come to Jesus and it's your best life now. Trust in Jesus really hard and you'll be prosperous and successful in all your worldly endeavors. Trust in Christ and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And life, it's like the old Coke commercial years ago. Life goes better with Jesus. Not if you understand the cross. Not if you understand the message of Jesus. This is not the message of Christ. In an article entitled, The Old Cross and the New, A.W. Pink wrote these words. Bear with me as I, I read just a portion of his article. All unannounced and mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It's like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial, the differences fundamental. The new cross does not demand an abnegation of the old life before a new life can be received. Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at the moment, it cleverly shows that the very thing the gospel offers, only the religious product is better. The new cross does not slay the sinner, it redirects him or her. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of the Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. That's why it draws large crowds. The old cross, however, is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. God offers life, but not an old, improved life, not an improved old life. The, the life he offers is a life out of death it stands always on the far side of the cross. And whoever would possess it must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and incur with God's just sentence against him. 
What does this mean to the individual? The condemned man who would find life in Christ Jesus. How can this theology be translated into life? Simply, we must repent and believe. We must forsake our sins and then go on and forsake ourselves. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. And Jesus says, welcome to Christianity 101. Jesus says, this is what I mean in following me. You must take up your cross daily and follow. Unlike so many pastors today who want to portray following Christ as an avenue to self-fulfillment, Jesus says following me is an avenue to denying yourself and taking up your cross and following me. Without such a cost, you cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus, now that he's shaken the crowd, wants to remind them, if you're going to follow me, you better count the cost. And following Jesus in discipleship requires just that, counting the cost. And so he tells too many parables. The first is a man who wants to build a tower. The second is a king who wants to go to war. And in both instances, if you don't count the cost, you're a fool. Everybody knows this. And so Jesus uses this as an example and says, before you follow me, remember what following me involves. Remember what it will cost you. It may cost you your family and your friends and your future. It will require of you your absolute unrivaled love and loyalty to me. It may involve great personal loss and suffering and sacrifice simply because you bear the name Christian. So what will it cost to be a disciple of Jesus as we sum up his teaching here? Simply put, everything. Your life, your loves, your all. Jesus reminds us of this in verse 33 in no uncertain terms. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has, the third time he says this now, cannot be my disciple. This is the only kind of Christianity Christ knows. It's the only kind of discipleship to which he calls. Without such loving allegiance, we cannot be his disciples. He says so three times. But Jesus isn't quite finished here. He hasn't dismissed the crowd. Sort of like Lieutenant Columbo, he he turns around and says, oh yeah, one, one more thing. Notice in verse 34 and 35 that one more thing as he caps this calling to discipleship. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is Jesus saying? As he uses this saying of salt to to cap his call to discipleship, he is saying this. Half-hearted, Complacent, indecisive, low-cost, no-cross discipleship is like salt that's lost its savor. Salt that has lost its ability to flavor, salt that's lost its ability to preserve. 
And when that happens to salt, it is so contrary to the nature and purpose of salt that it's no longer fit even for the dung heap. It's not fit for the manure pile. So so what's Jesus saying? Listen carefully. He, He said to the crowd gathered there, and we still as a crowd want to hear his voice today. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. Nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only that is low cost, no cross Christianity is worthless in the kingdom of God. Not only because it is ineffective and of no use, but because, listen, it is non-authentic. It is not biblical Christianity. That's Jesus' message for our American culture today that many would claim to be followers of Jesus but do not truly know him. You know, admittedly, these are hard sayings. And uh, if we were jumping and skipping around, I could, I could come up with happy messages every week. But because we work our way through the text, Jesus forces us this morning to ask this question Where am I in the crowd? Where are you in the crowd? Am I like so many in Jesus' day, simply along for the ride, enamored by Jesus' teaching, amazed by his miracles, drawn to his personality and hope that somehow he will fulfill the desires of my life? Or by grace have I recognized my sin and need of a Savior? By grace have I recognized that the one who calls me to count the cost and take up my cross has already done so? He's gone before us. And Jesus literally counted the cost of what it would mean to purchase you and to purchase me for the Father. He literally took up that cross, a cross on which he was beaten and mocked and ridiculed, nails in his hands and feet, sword in his side where he bled and died. Jesus, my friends, has already counted the cost, has already gone to the cross for you. And so when we begin to see and hear the one who calls us down this pathway of Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering and the way of cross, we see the one who's blazed the trail for us and before us. And it causes us, in the words of Isaac Watts, to begin to understand something of the means and the motive to follow him no matter the cost. We sing, when I surveyed the wondrous cross, on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands what? It demands what? My soul, my life, my all. No, ministry success is not measured by numbers. It's not measured by the size of the crowd. It's not measured by a full house. Rather, it is measured by full hearts. Hearts who have seen and been captivated by the glory of God and the grace of God in Jesus. And who've heard the call, empowered by His Spirit, moved and motivated by His love and mercy on the cross to follow Him with an unabandoned pursuit. To love him by God's grace with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. To turn our backs on the gods of men. And for his glory to pursue him with a passion. 
Jesus said, this is not grad-level discipleship. This is what it means to be a follower of him, period. May Jesus give us ears to hear and hearts to respond gratefully in his call upon each and every one of our lives. And may we, in the midst of our feebleness and frailty to do so, find strength at the foot of the cross and strength around the table of the king. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, when you instituted this sacred meal for your disciples, they could have scarcely imagined what the cross truly entailed. The cross that awaited you and the lesser crosses that awaited them. And yet you used the supper to strengthen their feeble faith and to renew their weak resolve in order that they might live wholly unto you. And so we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, use this table, use this communion celebration as a means of grace to strengthen our feeble knees and weak hands and even more feeble, weak hearts that we might hear the call of Jesus that we might deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily and follow him for his glory and in his strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.